0: Thank you for being here today. It's good to be together in the Lord's house. Hey, if you have your Bible this morning, would you take it out? Do you know where we're going to turn to? Genesis chapter 1, actually leaning into chapter 2, so get that out in front of you. That's, that is part of the point, getting God's Word open in front of you. The point isn't that we come here once a week and just read it together, but we study it in such a way that encourages you to keep reading all week long. So Genesis chapter 1, if you've been with us recently, you know that we've just started this new teaching series called Ten Words. Um, God's big story from cover to cover in just ten words. Maybe before this you didn't know it was possible to tell the entire big story of God in just ten words, but not only is it possible to do it, and I want to teach you how to do it, but in fact you can do it in the first three chapters of the very first book. That in fact, you can see the outline of God's big story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then once you have that outline, the next 47 chapters and the next 65 books after that are merely filling in the details of what the big story of where all this came from, where all this is going to, who's with us on the journey, and how the chapter we're going through right now fits in to this big narrative. So the first word we learned was, anyone remember what the The first word was create. Create. Those of you at home, please participate as well. Create. Um, And that means that there is one true eternal God of the universe who called into existence absolutely everything in the heavens and the earth out of absolutely nothing, and he created all of it good and for his own glory. Second word was bless. And that means that from beginning to end, God has intended in this good world to cover our lives with favor, which means the good things of life multiplied and deep down joy that is unshakably experienced. Now, we come back to the very end of Genesis chapter 1 today. So if you have it there open in front of you, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, it says this God saw all that he made. And this is what we've been covering so far. The light and the darkness, the sea and the sky, the dry land, the sun, moon and the stars of night, the birds in the sky, the creatures in the sea, all the beasts of the earth, he saw mankind created in his own image. In the image of God he created the male and female, he created them and God blessed them and said, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it." God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2 begins, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work which he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested. Say rest. He rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested. Say, rest from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And with this final summation, chapter 2 and verse 4, the curtain closes on this very first scene that is given to us in the Bible, this poetic overview of the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And it ends with one last word. This world that he created was good, this world was blessed, and it was wired for rest. And we know this is really important because God himself personally inaugurated rest as a part of the cycle of a life that he designed us for. But it is a fascinating little twist to the story, wouldn't you agree? I mean, maybe you've heard this story so many times that it no longer arrests your attention as it ought to, but I guarantee if you were reading this story for the very first time, it would cause you to pause. The almighty, eternal creator of the heavens and the earth, who does not grow weary or tired, who does not slumber or sleep, whose power is without limit, but at the end of six days, he knocks off for a day off you just got to know there's got to be something there. Because someone who does not grow weary or tired and who does not slumber or sleep, who is changeless, who is limitless, doesn't, in a sense that we would think, need a day off. There's got to be something there. So what are the options on the seventh day he rested? I mean, the option is God says, man, I'm just bushed. What a week. In fact, I think I pulled a muscle with that Andromeda galaxy there. I think just a little icy hot in Netflix is what the doctor ordered. Wow, what a week I had. Except that he doesn't grow weary or tired. God doesn't take naps. He doesn't pull muscles. So that's not why God takes a day off. Maybe he's just trying to teach his kids how to rest. He doesn't need to rest, but he's trying to teach his kids how. Here's what it makes me think of. When our kids were little, and we're trying to convince them that they need to take naps. Any parent ever did this? And so, like, it's Sunday afternoon nap time, and you get in bed, and you go, now look at Daddy now. See, Daddy's going to take a nap. Oh, I'm so tired. Watch me now. See what we're doing here? Of course, nine times out of ten, you know what happens. I fall asleep, kid stays awake. But anyway, I'm trying to say, this is how we take naps. I'm showing you, but you're the one who really needs it. Is it that God's bushed? Is it that God is trying to show his kids how to take naps, even though he doesn't really need them? What is the rest of God about? When it comes to understanding the rest of God, I would suggest that the idea is much deeper and much more enduring that most of us pause to recognize. I mean, we know that God and creation rested on the seventh day. We know that it was a clear commandment, at least in the Old Testament, and a pattern for our lives. But beyond that, few of us pause to recognize how deep rest goes. Rest doesn't just mean quitting because you're tired. In fact, biblically speaking, rest is another one of those cover to cover from beginning to end Descriptions of the good, blessed life, not only that God created us for, but the life that God has in store for us, and between here and there that He gives to us provisionally by grace day by day. So, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, time and time again, we're reminded of what we just read in the very first scene as it closes in the Bible, especially when the Sabbath is being commanded. But both Old and New Testaments. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh day. Comes back to this time and time again. Particularly in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the giving of the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day. Every time the Israelites were reminded that not only had God spoken this commandment, but God had personally showed us this commandment. Here's an example and a very important one I want you to focus on today. It's in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, verse 16, it says, The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. Then here's the key word I want you, or key verse I want you to remember. thirty-one seventeen. The Sabbath will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Okay, now I'm even more intrigued. I mean, the whole part about resting, but in what sense was God on the seventh day refreshed? I mean, even if I can accept the fact that when God got to the weekend, he knocked off work, in what sense could God be refreshed by having a day off? To a God who does not grow weary or tired, who does not take naps, who does not pull muscles, who is not changeless, how could he be refreshed On the seventh day, when he wasn't even tired. Now, I want to take a little time today to break down this particular verse because I think we can put together all the parts of how God lived out rest, Sabbath. He made the heavens and the earth, it says. He rested on the seventh day, and on that day, he was refreshed. Made, rested, refreshed. If we can put all three of those together, I think it's going to make more sense this life that God is calling us to as well, the promise that he has in store for us, because this rest is where the story started. This rest is where the story is going to end as well. This Sabbath will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That's what good rest looks like for you, too. Now, while it may seem somewhat counterintuitive, when it comes to the rest of God, it actually begins with rewarding, meaningful work. Rest begins with work. We must never lose sight of the fact that the Sabbath day commandment was about work as much as it was about rest. Go back, read it again. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, therefore you shall work for six days. That's the front end of the Sabbath commandment. In six days you shall do all your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, you and everyone in your house. So people who refused to work were violating the Sabbath commandment as much as those who were refusing to rest. God's commandment was about the cycle of both working and resting. Work is good. Work, properly understood, properly directed, is a holy exercise. The first picture that we are given of God in the Bible is a picture of him creatively working. So if all you knew were were these first two chapters, you would know God is a creative, industrious worker. And when we work and create and cultivate, this is an important part of living together in his image. Your work matters to God. Productivity is a gift of God. Now, by the way, many times I prefer to talk about productivity over work. And here's the reason why. Because in our culture, in our language, when we say work, that is so associated with your job, your paycheck, making a living. And so then many times we're limited, we think work means job. It doesn't matter if you are retired and set from here on out. It doesn't matter if you are independently wealthy and never need to work another day in your life. To be able to creatively and meaningfully use your gifts to create a more beautiful world and to serve the people who are in it to the glory of God, this is a profound gift to you not just to those that are the beneficiaries of your work. In fact, you show me someone with the ability to do so, but who is not living a productive life, and I will show you a person who's living a cursed life. Think about it. Follow it out. Whether they are sitting on a street corner or they are sitting in a mansion, someone who is living day after day, week after week, and not living a productive life, that is a cursed existence. Productivity. Productivity. Gardening, learning, making music, building cabinets, writing programs, tutoring students, serving humanity in some way, but creatively and meaningfully using your talents and your gifts and your abilities to create a more beautiful world and to serve the people who live in it to the glory of God, this is the front end of a life of rest. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Rewarding life is rewarding work is how a good life begins. Don't think for a moment that if all sin were taken out of the world, all work would be gone. Not for a minute. In God's perfectly good world, he was working and those created in his image were working as well. For that matter, I have no reason to make that assumption about the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, part of the reasons people object to the idea of heaven is after a while they say, what are we going to do? I mean, I get the whole, like, worship service and it'll be cool. I get that. And I'll even take up playing a harp if that's part of the thing. But after a while, isn't it going to get a little boring? That's assuming that this good work creatively, meaningfully, Stretching and growing to use how God has wired you to enrich the world and the people who are in it. What if in a completely beautiful sense you had all of eternity to learn and to grow and to beautify and to create that which will make better? Why would we think if this was part of God's original perfectly good world, in the perfectly new good world to come, this would somehow go away? I don't think I would necessarily want to live by that. I mean, do you think that heaven is going to be some kind of all-inclusive resort where all you do is order from poolside service? I mean, I get it. A week is nice. But two weeks, three weeks, at some point you'd want to do something, wouldn't you? Of course you would. You're hardwired that way. That is part of living in God's image. So it starts with rewarding work. It is coupled with stopping to rest. It says, and on the seventh day, the Lord rested. And the Hebrew word there is Shabbat. That's simply how we say in English Sabbath. Sabbath means literally stop, cease, halt. That is the most basic idea behind Sabbath, stopping to rest. Rest. Now, in Hebrew thinking, a day was reckoned from sunset to sunset. So, in other words, Friday night sundown to Saturday sundown. In our thinking, we tend to think sunrise to sunrise or midnight to midnight. Regardless of how you count a 24-hour day, hardwired into every single week, God's plan was for a day to be set apart that looked different. That means holy. Different from all the others in which all the other work, and I mean even the good Meaningful, rewarding work, all the other work simply stops. And this pattern of good rest from the foundation of the world has God's own fingerprints on it because he is the first one to stop all his labors. It's an interesting phenomenon, by the way, that basically every culture in every corner of the world counts time in terms of seven-day weeks. It's just interesting, that's all. It doesn't break up evenly into a year. Rarely does it break up evenly into a month, and it's not that other options haven't been tried. The Egyptians tried a 10-day week, early Romans tried an 8-day week. Of course, historians and anthropologists are not going to give any consideration to an answer that would have anything to do with a creator God, but at the very least, anyone should find it interesting, wouldn't you think? That basically, all of humanity keeps snapping back to this idea of a 7-day unit of life and living, almost as if we're hardwired for it. This is how God created us. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth with amazing creativity and diligence. He made out of absolutely nothing everything else that we see and then on the seventh day, he stopped and created in his image, he has designed you and me to live in the same pattern. Meaningful work plus stopping to rest. But still, there's that super interesting third part. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested, and he was refreshed. Now, in what sense could that be said of God? What I want to do here is I want to read for you from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. Now, I know that usually we kind of poo-poo the message. Well, it's a fun, easy reading thing, but if you really want an accurate translation, you, you ought to be reading the ESV or the NASB or something like that. But what I want you to know is that in Exodus 31, 17, the message is actually the most literal translation that I've been able to find. Here's how Eugene Peterson put it. He said, The Sabbath is a fixed sign between me and the Israelites. Yes, because in six days God made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he stopped Shabbat and took a long, deep breath. Now, how did God take a big, long, deep breath? This actually is a very good description. On the seventh day he stopped Shabbat Cease, stop, halt. That's pretty good. That's pretty literal. And then he took a deep, long breath. Now, what is that about? God doesn't even have lungs. I'm sorry. Perhaps he doesn't have lungs, if I can make that clear. The Hebrew word is nafash, and it literally means to breathe. This is the most literal Bible rendering, I've been able to find, of Exodus thirty-one seventeen. It literally means to breathe. On the seventh day, God stopped and he took a long, deep breath. Now, you may remember that a couple of weeks ago, we learned that in Hebrew, there is a strong connection between living and breathing. In fact, the same word is also used to describe living, breathing, or a living soul or being. So, for instance, We see in Genesis, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became, when that breath of God filled his lungs, the man became a living being, nefesh. Same word basically is used here in Exodus. On the seventh day, God stopped and took a deep, long breath. So I went back and forth on this next blank. I know no one here ever does that, but sometimes people will look at these empty blanks and they will think, I wonder what should go in this next blank. They might even play a little game with it. You wouldn't do it, but in the next service, they do that a lot. Well, I want you to know sometimes I do it and I write these outlines and I think, what should go in this? I really struggled. So what should go in this blank here? Because God showed us that it's rewarding work plus stopping to rest and making space to... Should I say live or should I say breathe? Because the word means the same thing. Am I making space to live or am I making space to breathe? And I decided you can decide what you put in or both. Because the Bible is talking about the same thing. Let me unpack that a little bit. Have you ever been in a situation... You were uptight, you were anxious, you were distressed, panicked even, and someone said to you, as you sat on the curb looking at the auto accident, as you sat on the edge of the ER gurney, I don't know what it was, but somebody said to you, what I need you to do right now is I need you to breathe. I just need you to slow down and breathe. In the Hebrew way of thinking, when you are living, in the deepest possible sense, you are breathing. And when, in the deepest sense, you are truly breathing, you are most alive. Where, when, do you most deeply breathe in life? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's not just that you are able to inhale and exhale most deeply, unforced, relaxed, but there's something about your thoughts that breathe. There's something about your blood that flows freely. I find it when, without thinking about it, I'm starting to sing under my breath. That's how I can tell. How can you tell when you are really breathing? Is it when you're sitting on the beach? You're looking out on the lake. You're fishing the river. You're watching your grandchildren play. You're sitting on the front porch on a swing in the arms of the one you love, when and where would you say, in that moment, I am most, in the deepest sense of the word, alive? I am most truly, deeply, naturally in the place where I can breathe. When and where does that happen for you? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? More than one of us have found that experience getting away to be a part of a spiritual retreat of some sort. It might have been a camp for youth, a retreat for women, it was a conference for men. It was it was just two days of solitude with nothing but a cabin in your Bible. But somehow, and while it took effort, did it not, to block that time off, to make the arrangements, even the expense related to it, but when you created that space and when you blocked out that time just to stop, the normal routine of what you normally do in the normal places that you normally go in that space something transformative happened it's hard to put into words exactly but in that space as you came back down from the mountain it was as if somehow the spirit of god breathed something inside of you alive again maybe it wasn't dead but it was sleeping In fact, many of us are experiencing it right now, today, gathered in this place, today, gathered in sanctuaries all across this valley. One day in seven to stop, rest, breathe in. And honestly, some of us debated with ourselves, even today, you're sitting at home and you debated whether or not it would be possible just to stop for this gathering. Do I really have the time? Is it worth the hassle? Is it worth the conflict with the kids? But somehow, I don't know how, you made the space. And now you're here in the fellowship of God's people, in the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And as these songs of worship are washing over your soul, and as God's word is resonating with your spirit, something inside of you a little bit comes alive again. Something inside of you says, I can do this. This has been tough, tough. but I think I can do another six days. Even though it's a little hard to put into words, gathered together today, you breathe in a way spiritually that you desperately need. Now, why is this such an important piece? Rest. Meaningful work. Stopping to rest. Making space to really breathe. Why is this such an important piece if you're going to understand God's big story. Because if you're really going to get where all of this is going and how this chapter you are going through right now fits into all of this, you need to understand what God had in mind in the very beginning when he created us because God created us for a good life of rest. And you understand now, this doesn't just mean sitting around and doing nothing but ordering from a poolside menu. It means meaningful, rewarding, creative work you are wired for Coupled with stopping to rest and space to deeply breathe and room to truly live. And then doing that over and over and over again. Now because even though a million things have gone off the rails in God's good design. Both in the big world and in our own little lives. Still, a lot of things start to make a lot more sense when we grab a hold of where this whole thing started from. It's always important to remember it hasn't always been this way, what we're going through right now. Genesis 1 and 2, paint a picture of God creating and inaugurating this good, blessed world marked by rewarding work and time to rest. But then in Genesis chapter 3, a new word is introduced into the store. And we're going to get to that part soon enough, how this whole thing went off the rails. But while in Genesis chapter 2, it talks about work, in Genesis 3, it gives us a new word and it's this idea of toil. And the basic idea behind this word toil is pain, work that hurts. God created us for a good life of rest, though we are now living in a world marked by toil. God created us to experience meaningful, rewarding work. But most of us can relate, relate, at least at some point in our life, to work that had too little meaning and too little reward basically a job we hate and whether it's a dead-end job that we hate going to but we have to just to make ends me, or, or whether it's me having to clean out the alley twice a year, otherwise I'm going to get fined by the utility company. And nobody sees what I do, and it's hard, and nobody appreciates it, but I have to do it. Everybody on some level can relate to work with too little meaning and too little reward. In fact, let's let's try this here. Let's try just a little neighbor nudge, okay? You who are sitting right here, you who are at home, talk to each other. Just quickly, I want you to think what's the worst job you ever got paid to do worst job you've ever had okay right now this is you're, you're talking to each other worst job you ever had would someone like to volunteer one worst job you ever had or are you, are you volunteering your dad <laughs> did you just volunteer your dad no <laughs> did, has anyone ever had a lousy job if your boss is in the room and you don't want to say, I, I don't mind. Anybody? Bill collector. Bill collector. Oh yeah, yeah. Summer job in the sewage plant. Do I hear anything better, worse than that? And in the summer too. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Telemarketer. Yeah. That's anybody else? All right, I think we have a, I think we have a winner, sewage department in the summer. The, was that here in Phoenix? No. Oh, well, thank you. God bless you for that anyway. <laughs> in fact, jobs we hate are so much a part of our shared experience, there are entire soundtracks Soundtracks devoted to songs we hate. You know what I'm talking about. In fact, in fact, I asked the folks at the Bethany Research Department today to come up with the top ten jobs I hate songs. And, and they compiled this list, maybe some of your favorites on it. Here's the first five. You're starting down at number 10, 9 to 5, by Dolly Parton. Uh Working for a Living, Huey Lewis in the News. She works hard for the money, Donna Summer. Working Man Blues. Merle Haggard, I hate my job. That's subtle by Cameron. Anybody recognize any of those? How about, how about the next four here? I hate my jobs. Money for nothing. Any Dire Straits fans in the... I know for a fact there are. Okay, A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles, dead in job by the police. 16 tons, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right? 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. That seemed to resonate. But what do you think? Any guesses? What is the number one... Just, I got a horrible job song. Anybody want to take any guess? <laughs> Here we go. Number one song, Johnny Paycheck, Take This Job and Shove It, right? The ultimate anthem for somebody who has meaningless toil for a job. We have prizes for both of you. Come see me after, after this. But anyway, the point is, we understand these songs because toil is a painful part of the lives we live now. And we all know it. And if you don't, just hang in there. It'll come to you. Unrewarding work is a part of our lives. We know this because we've lived this. But this is not how God intended it. This isn't how the story began. This is not how the story is going to end either. This is just a chapter that we're stuck in in the middle of the story. God created us for a good life of rest, though we're now living in a world of toil, but still, even in the midst of a life that is not all that it should be, still we have this calling to reclaim God's life of rest. What is the commandment about the Sabbath day for? To reclaim God's gift of rest, even in the midst of a broken world of toil. But how will that work? Stopping for one day. I've got so much to do already. Am I not just going to fall further behind? I can't imagine how I could afford to do so. Every generation has struggled with this. God's promise was if we would simply trust him enough to stop for a day, not only will we breathe more fully, but we can trust him to provide more than enough abundance for the day that we stopped. Does that really work? Seems to work for Chick-fil-A just fine. The Sabbath day was a day of rest given by God. The Sabbath year in the Old Testament was a whole year of rest given by God. The land of promise was a land of rest given by God. But none of these, even these gifts that were to punctuate our lives of toil on regular basis with seasons and places, none of these were gifts of perfect peace and rest. These were passing graces. And just like with blessings, rest is the same. Even if we take a 28-day Bahamun cruise, even if we take a three-month sabbatical, even if we retire at 52, sooner or later, the toil, the pain, the struggle, the hurt will return. For most of us, that just means Mondays coming. These gifts were never meant to be perfect peace and rest. They were always meant to be a foretaste, and primarily they were always pointing to something far greater, and without end, that was yet to come. Now, let me take you back one more time to Exodus 31, 17, because it turns out it not only breaks down the three parts of the point of rest, but also what the reason was for. Look at it there. The Sabbath will be a sign. It's going to be a sign. Now, what is the point of a sign? A sign always points to something else. The Sabbath day will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. Four and six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day he stopped and he breathed deeply. But what is the point of this sign? The Bible says that even these gifts of rest, like days and seasons and places, like were not an end to themselves. They were always pointing to a greater promise. So what was the promise? Let me have you turn here. I need to have you turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 in particular. Let me, I'll just wait for just a minute. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Because understanding God's story of rest is going to be really important in understanding Jesus. Now, maybe you know these verses, and I hope you know these verses, but if not, listen to them for the first time. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light now what's interesting about this if you'll take the time and just look just read a little backwards read a little bit forwards you'll find that this is in the context of controversy about wait for it the sabbath day this wasn't just a random thing where he said hey by the way i just have a thought everybody who's tired come to me i'll give you rest This is in the context of controversy about the Sabbath day. So immediately following, there's a story about Jesus' disciples, and they're going through the grain field on the Sabbath day, but they're hungry. And so they start popping off the heads of grain and, you know, eating them like granola because they're hungry. But this was a major infraction to the religious watchdogs watching them do it. They were very serious about keeping the Sabbath. And so to make sure that it was done properly, they had developed a whole catalog of what qualified as work that was prohibited on this Sabbath day, and you guessed it, popping heads of grain off was on the do not do list. And then this story is followed by yet another story that happened on the same day when Jesus went into the synagogue, the same Sabbath day, and there's a man there, you remember, and he had a withered hand, and he wanted to be healed, and you guessed it. Healing on the Sabbath day was on the do not do list. It was classified as work. And so the religious watchdogs, they began to confront Jesus about the stuff he's doing on God's good day of rest. And Jesus responds to them, you're missing the whole point. The Sabbath day was a gift of provisional rest, but you're missing the point of the day of rest. And to look at the sign when the reality is right in front of you is to miss the whole point. It was always pointing to a greater promise to come. That's what it said in Exodus 31. This would be a sign. And it's in this context, he says, I'm not the servant of the Sabbath. Let me say rest because that's what it literally means. I'm not the servant of rest. He said, I am the Lord of the rest, the Lord of the Sabbath, chapter 12 and verse 8. I am the Lord of the rest. So it's not just in the midst of a conversation, but literally in the midst of a raging conversation about what the rest day was all about, Jesus said. I am what the day of rest was pointing to. I am the Lord of the rest. And so, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your lives. And by the way, when Jesus said this here, he wasn't just making this up, he was actually quoting from the Old Testament. The promise, you will find rest for your souls, came from the prophet Jeremiah, and he was prophesying about the greater rest that would come. Here's what the verse says that Jesus was quoting from in Jeremiah chapter 6. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And when you walk in that way, what will you find? You will find rest for your souls. Jesus said, I am that. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the ancient path. Jesus is the good way that Jeremiah was talking about that you walk in. And when you walk in the good way, which is Jesus, you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I am the way and the truth and the life. When you walk in this good way, you will find God's greater promise of rest. What's the rest of the story? God created us for a good life of rest. Even though we're now living in a world of toil, still with the calling to reclaim God's gift of rest, gracious moments of days and seasons and places when we can stop and breathe, pause and really live. But even all of these are just signs. All of them pointing to the ultimate promise of rest. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the ancient path. Jesus is the good way. Walk in him, follow him, for Jesus has prepared a place for us and we mean this in the best sense of the word where we realize our final resting place. We need to reclaim that. I don't have good associations with final resting place. I'm not ready to go to that final resting place. But you see, when the Bible talks about resting place, that's where God is in the Father's house, and that's the end of the story. God created a good world of rest. Genesis chapter 2, the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God finished the work, and on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Creative, meaningful, rewarding work that expresses God's image uniquely placed inside of you, along with plenty of time to stop and rest, plenty of time to breathe and live. You can't tell God's big story without this creation design. So what do we expect to find when we finally get to the very end of the book? Revelation chapter 14. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord Jesus from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from all of their toil, for their deeds will follow with them. From cover to cover, God's big story is a story about perfect peace and rest. As Shane was praying for us this morning, I was thinking, he said, may we obey what you're calling us to do. What does is, what is obedience look like for you in relation to this? Maybe you need to stop and breathe. Maybe you've been a Sabbath breaker like I have been a time or two. Maybe that. But I really think the deepest sense of obedience is to fully believe in Jesus. Because even if you kept one day out of seven perfectly, but did not put your whole faith and trust in Jesus, who is the provision of perfect peace and rest, you would not be following God's greatest command to walk in the ancient paths, to follow in the good way that will lead you to rest for your lives. Obedience means to believe in Jesus. He is the center Of God's big story and he is the one who will take us to the end of the story Heavenly Father we approach your word this morning as those who are weary and tired Lord just COVID has been tiring I say it I hear it all the time so tired of this so ready for this to be over We're tired from our jobs. We're tired from some of the conflict. We're tired from some of the pain. Sometimes, even just, we're tired of hurting in different kinds of ways. Lord, this is just an opportunity for us to take you at your word. Take you at your word. That if we are weary and tired, and if we come to you, we will find rest. And yes, we will find these punctuation marks of rest in these lives of toil but you will fill us with rest from the inside out and you will take us to perfect rest not just an eternity of stopping and sitting but an eternity of experiencing what you've designed us for which is to reflect your own image thank you Jesus for delivering on your father's promise to deliver rest into these lives of toil. We believe you. We embrace it. And in your name we receive it.